some reason. There we go. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your blessings upon us. We ask now that you would take this time that we've dedicated to your worship. And Lord, that you would step in, that you would work in each heart, that you would help us to take the burdens and the cares of this life and bring them to you and allow you to carry them for us. Lord, we ask if there be one here today that does not know you as their Savior, that they would understand your message from the Word of God and have what they need to make their own decision whether to trust you as their Savior or not. Lord, we ask that you would work in each heart and life here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And people talk about a lot of wonderful things in heaven, but I'll tell you there's only one wonderful thing that uh, that I'm looking forward to, and that is seeing my Savior. Amen? And the Bible tells us that's what heaven is going to be about. It's going to be about the worship and the adoration of Jesus. And so we have to be careful. A lot of go- that goes on under the name of worship today, uh, I'll tell you what, we're not going to just jump up and down for 10,000 years. Uh, that's not worship what we're going to do is honor and glorify the King. Amen? And that takes thought, and that takes some effort, and it's, going, it's something that involves your whole being. And as Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, was teaching on what the kingdom of God is and what it's going to take to enter into heaven, one of the people in the crowd just simply asked him this question, and this is where we're going to start. Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord. Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Now, boy, that's a question, isn't it? As Jesus was teaching, he was going against the general thought process and the working in the mind and the religion that belonged to the Jewish people at that time. Their basic thought, and and you can find this echoed many passages throughout the New Testament, is we're the descendants of Abraham. That's all we need to get to heaven. Anybody remember what Jesus said? He said, If I wanted to, I could raise up descendants to Abraham out of these rocks. Just because you have a physical lineage is not going to get you to heaven. One of the most confusing answers that that I get when able to discuss these things with people on a personal level, but but I've always been a Christian. Well, in in a certain sense of the word, that, that is true. Uh, if you were not born into uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist family or Islam or some of the other world religions, you, you can say, listen, I'm, I am not those things. I, I've always been a Christian. But in the Bible sense of the word, you can't always be a Christian. Because in order to become a Christian, you must be born again. Now, contrary to popular belief, you did not exist before your birthday. 
There's a lot of religions and world ideas that teach that. That uh, we all come from the eternal nothingness and someday we shall return to that eternal nothingness. And uh, being that I'm just a little bit of a smart aleck, that's a bunch of nothing, amen? Uh, There is no such thing as an eternal nothingness. Everything is made of something, amen? We're not here to revive the fallen and perverted thought process, we'll get it out here, of the ancient Greek philosophers. You want to study religion. How many people know who Augustine was? Anybody remember Augustine? How many people know who Thomas Aquinas was? Uh, These are ancient, quote-unquote, church fathers. Thomas Aquinas lived in the 1400s. Thomas Aquinas took the philosophy of Aristotle and synchronized it with the Scripture. Augustine took the philosophy of Plato and synchronized it with the Scripture. Now, there's only one problem. When you synchronize things, how many of you have ever tried to, to sync, we, we call hot sync your uh, PDA to your computer or your, your laptop to your desktop? And you, you sit there and you say, I've got all this information on here and all this information, I want to put it all in one place, so I'm going to hit that magic little button and it all disappears. Anybody have that happen? Oftentimes what I get is this little message. We have a conflict. What's new? Uh, How do you want to synchronize? Do you want the cell phone to tell the computer what to write or do you want the computer to tell the cell phone what to write? I want both of them, stupid. Can't you understand that? But uh, no matter how many times I yell at the computer, it never gets the hint. And so I lose information and it does this and does that and messes up this. When you synchronize two things, one has to be the leader. When you synchronize the Bible with anything else, guess who loses? The Bible does. You say, but couldn't we synchronize something with the Bible where it loses? Well, here's the simple question. If we're going to synchronize something with the Bible and take away things from it to make it agree with the Bible, why don't we just throw it away and use the Bible? It's a whole lot easier that way. Jesus was teaching... And see, the Jewish mind was, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I keep the Ten Commandments. I go to the synagogue every day. I, I show up at Jerusalem and offer my sacrifices. I'm at the Feast of the Passover. I'm at the Feast of Pentecost. I'm at the Feast of the Trumpets. I am obedient to this book called the Bible. What more does God want? And so as Jesus was teaching, this man said, Wait a minute, Jesus. This, this doesn't make sense. You seem to intimate and to teach in your teaching 
then not everybody's going to heaven. And Jesus answers them in the next verse. Let's look at verse 24. Verse 23, the last phrase that we skipped over says, And he said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, he is answering the question, Lord, are there few that be saved? Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Let's read verse 24 one more time. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Kind of a harsh answer, is it not? See, we have two extremes in religion today. We have the one extreme that says, well, everybody's going to get saved. God is a God of love, and he wouldn't send anybody to hell. We're all God's children. We're all going to heaven. The other extreme is if you don't belong to our group and do what we say, you have no hope of going to heaven. But if you'll come to our group and do what we say, the way we say it, maybe someday you'll be good enough to go to heaven. Those are the extremes. And I want you to understand that both are equally wrong. There is no ownership by any religion, by any group of people, by any organization, by any man or group of men or women. You cannot own truth. Truth does not belong to an individual privately. We live in a world where people say, well, that's your truth. There is no bigger lie than that's your truth. Because if it belongs to you, it's not truth. Truth can't belong to an individual. It's not something you can own and have control over. Unless you're a politician. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. It just slips out. If you're a politician, you can say anything you want and people believe you. It's absolutely amazing. But real truth can't be owned by an individual. It's true because it's true. Amen? Has anyone tried to own the law of gravity? It belongs to me. But if I step off the edge of this platform, I'm going to do the same thing that you're going to do. It's called fall on your face and hurt things. Therefore, I'm going to stay on the platform the best that I can. And if I do fall off the end, it won't be because I own the law of gravity. It will be because I defied it and lost. You can't own truth. Jesus said, listen, here's the way it works. He said, you got to strive. Now, that's a word we don't like. Strive means to fight. It means a life or death struggle. 
I read a little story in the Reader's Digest. It had to do with the Chesapeake Bay, not far from where I grew up, and so I always liked to read those stories. It was a young couple out sailboating, and a storm blew up, and and uh, she tried to tell her boyfriend, "You need to get the sail down. You need to get the motor started. You need to do." It. Oh, we got plenty of time before. They had time to react. A gust of wind blew their sailboat right over on its side. She said, I had a split second. I thought for sure the boat was capsizing and I would be trapped underneath the boat, in the boat underneath the water. That thought was not pleasant. So I jumped clear of the boat, no life jacket, into the choppy waters of the Chesapeake Bay said, I wasn't a very good swimmer. But as the, uh, the boat was righted and things got, he tried to throw a life preserver to his friend and she missed it. There was currents dragging her away from the boat. He tried to start the boat motor and get over there and the boat motor quit. And she was left to drip, drift into the shipping lanes, which weren't far away. She looked immediately, and there was a huge barge just pushing. Of course, they wouldn't even see her in the water. Her boyfriend watched in horror and thought for sure that she had been drowned, run over by that boat. She managed to swim clear of the boat, wasn't sucked in or any of those things, but still two and a half miles from shore. She saw a lighthouse in the distance and thought, maybe I can get there. And as she struggled through the waters for the next hour or so while they were calling help and and trying to organize a rescue, she got to the lighthouse. And what she found out? It was a steel base, slicker than glass because it was in the water and the ladder was many feet above the water line because of vandals who would swim out and do graffiti on the thing. It was was worse than hopeless. By now, the sun had been setting. She'd been in the water for an hour and a half, almost two hours. And the Coast Guard and different vessels were searching. And here here was the phrase that caught my attention as I was reading the story. The rescue workers were saying, listen, we we know what's going to happen. They'd already gotten the call over the radio, come back and get the recovery equipment. You're never going to find her alive in this this water. And the man said, I'm going to search just a little more. He said, the hope of finding one bobbing head in the dark water is absolutely impossible. Then he heard something. Then he heard again. And they maneuvered the ship for the next 15 to 20 minutes. And here's what the rescue man said. He said, I could hear her screaming. She was screaming for her life. And she was. And they rescued her. One out of a thousand. More than likely, one out of 10,000. You don't survive very long in six-foot waves in choppy, shallow water like the Chesapeake Bay is. 
without any means of flotation at all. Even the most experienced swimmers exhaust themselves and drown. She was rescued. She tells of how that she kept trying to think of ways to get closer to the shore and get somewhere where she could be saved. And, and every time she was about to give up, she said she thought about her two younger sisters and other family members that she was responsible for. And, and she also thought that if I survive this thing, I'm going to give my boyfriend an earful. He's going to marry me. He's going to sell his boat. And he did that. But those were the things that she used in her mind to strive. If she had not put forth that maximum effort, she would have become another statistic. It's interesting that Jesus uses this word first when he describes, when he answers the question, are there few that be saved? That would tend to make us understand that reason number one why many people, and it does say many, miss heaven is because they aren't willing to strive. Please don't misunderstand me. Salvation is very simple. Even a little child can understand it. Most of you know Philip very well. How many have seen the change in Philip? Philip was five years old. He'd been talking, of course, he's in church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Thursday night. He hears us read the Bible uh, at the dinner table. He, I mean, he, he hears a lot. And, and uh, he began talking about these different things and Finally, he said, Daddy, I need to be saved. And I said, well, why do you need to be saved? And we would begin talking, and a few minutes later, somebody would pop popcorn, open up dessert, do something, and he was off in other directions. I knew he wasn't ready yet. You can't be distracted when God is really doing the work in your heart. What makes it so tough for us adults? And by the way, he did come to that point to where he trusted the Lord as his Savior. It's a wonderful thing. How many of you adults remember the struggle that it took for you to get saved? You had to get past yourself. You had to get past your religion. You had to get past all these ideas. Jesus says, listen... You want to know the answer, the plea, the, the answer to your question, the reason why there are few that be saved is because most people aren't willing to strive. They just want to put in a package instant relationship with God. In fact, on my um, uh, shelf, I think I have somebody gave me a copy of the 30-second Bible. And if you'll spend 30 seconds with the Bible, you can read through it in 15 years. I don't know that, but it, about 30 seconds a day, it would probably take close to 15 years to read through your Bible. Now, that's one of the reasons why we hand out the Bible reading schedules. They take a little bit of work. 
But that's part of that striving process. If you don't strive for the right things. I mean, we've had a lot of in the news about striving wrongfully, have we not? I think it was Brett burst my bubble the other day. I read a little note that uh, one of the Pittsburgh Steelers from when I was a kid had passed away. Yeah, it was Brett told me that. He said, you don't know? And I said, no. He said, they were all big roid users. Don't tell me my heroes were on drugs. Yeah, it wasn't illegal back then. They were all using it. Of course, that's why they could carry 600-pound refrigerators on their back and run races and all these fun things. I'm sick of professional sports. I'll tell you this. I'm sick of people like Bernie Madoff taking other people's money. He worked harder at being a thief than any ten ordinary men at earning an honest living. The way of sin is always hard. You ever read the story of what some of these criminals go through? How many of you like to be John Gotti? I mean, not now. He's dead and in hell. But you think of how he walked and, you know, everybody was scared and got out of his way. And, I mean, he was the dapper dawn and he had all this. I mean, have you ever read anything about his real life? It was out of a horror movie. Always looking over your shoulder, always trying to get even with somebody, always trying to to get back. I mean, what kind of life is that? People live horrible lives just so they can have money in the bank and a nice big car to drive and all of these things. Listen, Jesus said, if you want to understand the answer to few there be that saved, you've got to strive. But here's what you have to do. You have to strive to enter in at the straight gate. How many of you have been in an underground cave, caverns? I, I like that a little bit. Because they've been there and they put in lights and they've opened up the passages and made walkways. Have you ever read any of the stories of the guys that found those places? I mean, more often than not, they stumble into a crevice and lose their light, and now they're hundreds of feet underground with no light, no nothing, and they have to crawl out and. All those kinds of, they just make the hair in the back of my neck stand up and I I just don't like that. When the number one rule is supposed to be when you're exploring an underground cave and you have two ways, one is a narrow crevice and the other is a great big opening, guess which one you're supposed to take? The narrow crevice always leads to something better. The big wide opening is always a dead end. Almost always. I don't know, maybe God was trying to teach us something. I mean, I read that in a book about exploring caves. And it said you always try to squish through the narrow crevice. And it said you might find one that's dead end, get stuck in there, but just work your way back out. No, thank you. Somebody else can do that. All right. 
But, I mean, there's some beautiful things underground, are there not? I got to go to Ruby Falls one time down in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lookout Mountain. It's a 150-foot-high waterfall. Hundreds and hundreds of feet under Lookout Mountain. It's got a pool of water at the bottom as big around as this auditorium is, and nobody knows where the water goes. God does, amen. But they tell the story of the guy that went there and found this thing. And then as they're telling the story, they say, this is what, and they named the name and I've forgotten his name, this is what the cave explorer found the first time he entered in. They turn off all the lights. And I'm sitting here going, I don't like this. Turn on some lights. But it says strive to enter into the straight gate. I mean, there's lots of people that go lots of places, are there not? But the Bible tells us that there are few that be saved because, number one, they won't strive, and number two, they're not going to enter in at the straight gate. That word straight means narrow. To enter in means to actually go through. I think there's going to be a great crowd of people gathered around the gate looking at it. But if you don't enter in, you'll never be saved. There's something about passing through a door. I've had the opportunity to visit several times. Praise God, it was just a visit over at Rikers Island. And they bring you through the security and you walk through that gate and then this gate closes and you hear it lock. I mean, you really do. And then the other gate opens and you can walk through and then you hear that one lock. And then you know you're inside. I mean, and you're not getting outside until a police officer walks down and gives the right code or whatever to the person inside that uh, bomb-proof casement that they live in. And, and then the one gate opens and you step through. It's, it's that simple. Jesus said what? I am the door. There's a lot of people trying to get to God their own way. You can't get to God your way. It's got to be His way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me ask you a question. Have you entered the end to the straight gate today? Now, here's what it says. Jesus wasn't done yet. He said, for many, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in. We still live in a nation that claims the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, they want to call it the postmodern era, the post-Christian era, the post 
whatever. But, I mean, there's still, I think it's 83% of the American population, 70-something, 80-something percent, believe in the existence of God and a personal God. I mean, most Americans believe in these things. Most people who live in this country, in this country, would say, I don't want to go to heaven, to, to hell, I'm sorry. I don't want to go to hell if there is such a place. I, I, I think I'm going to heaven. And you would say, well, why? And they'd say, well, I'm as good as my next door neighbor. Uh, his name's Dahmer, I think. No. Um, you never know who your next door neighbor's going to be. The Bible says comparing themselves among themselves, they are unwise. We're not here to compare ourselves with each other, amen? We're not here because you can always find somebody worse than you. That's what uh, Paul Harvey was, they were giving a tribute to him. He passed away last week. And uh, he said the reason bad news sells is because you can always hear the story of someone who's worse off than you and it makes you feel better about yourself. Boy, is that a true statement or not? Jesus said, wait a minute. Here's what I have for you. If you'll strive to enter in at the straight gate. He says, because there's many that's going to try. The saddest thing to me, the most fearful thing as a pastor is I know there are people that come and they sit in the pews and they come week after week after week and I don't know whether they're saved or not. Now, your salvation and my knowledge of that doesn't make any difference or not, but I'll tell you, it sure helps me an awful lot when I know someone's saved, amen? Every once in a while I have to preach a funeral. It sure is easy when I know the person has trusted the Lord as their Savior. Hey, the toughest funeral in the world to preach is somebody you don't know. The Bible says many, many will seek to enter in. And oftentimes, as I've had discussions over the years, I had someone... Uh, I remember talking with a lady one time about her parents who had passed away, and she said, you're telling me my parents are in hell because they didn't ask Jesus Christ to save them? I said, well, tell me about it. Well, they were Anglicans. I said, well, that's not much hope. The Anglican church has not preached the gospel most of it in a 100 years. Though there are a few uh, uh, people out there occasionally who do, and she said, but... You know, the last 10 years of my dad's life, he just quit going to church and he sat at home and listened to the radio. He listened to all those Christian preachers. And this was back in the 40s and the 50s when there was still a lot of gospel preached on the radio. And I said, well, there's more hope there than anywhere else. But I can't answer for what your father did or did not do because I don't know. And you don't know you're his daughter. It would be wonderful if he listened to one of those preachers give the gospel and trusted Jesus as a Savior. I hope that's true. They tell me the story of my own grandfather. He moved from Italy in 1905. The 17-year-old boy. The week he died, the preacher went in and talked to him. He was in an oxygen tent. 
So the communication wasn't really good. And he gave him the gospel. And they always called him Pup and said, Pup, are you ready to meet God? Have you prepared your soul for eternity? And he said, yes. That's the only hope I have. When I read this verse, that's not much of a hope. When we look here, it says many, many will seek to enter in. I'm here to tell you that very few people that have ever lived as part of the human race desire and want to end up in hell separated from God for eternity. I don't even believe the the atheist philosophers like Voltaire and all of those, uh, uh, Thomas Paine who wrote against God and wrote against morality and holiness, I don't think they wanted to go to a place called hell. I think they were trying to imagine it out of existence, but uh, that doesn't work either, now does it? You look at the paintings, they call them that, of many of our modern artists. You know what you see in those paintings? You see the spirit of an unregenerate lost soul striving against the morality they know this book teaches and trying to find a synthesis, trying to find a connection between what's going on in their soul, what's going on in society in large, and so much of it is a rebellion against this book called the Bible. Why do you think they paint things in such weird, abstract ways? It's because they're trying to express the angst and the anger and the frustration in their souls and, and they come up and you read the lives of those artists. Read, read about the life of Michelangelo. You talk about a manic depressive. You talk about somebody that had deep, deep emotional disturbances. One of the greatest artists in all of history. You know how he did his great work? He was chained to the scaffold, the, like this right here. They built it up inside that huge basilica in Rome, and they actually took out chains and shackled him to them so he would lay there and finish the painting. He was not going to be free until he was done. So you know what he did? He painted a perfect likeness of the Pope that was then living that had chained him to the scaffold and made sure that he was in the lowest part of hell on his paintings. He did it. It's a fact. You can look it. And you know what the Pope said? He said, I don't care what he's done. This will be a testimony to my greatness throughout all history. Many of you seek to enter in. But do you really want your claim to greatness be the fact that Michelangelo painted your face in hell? See, many are going to try to enter in. But then the last few words of this are the most sad of all. And shall not be able. 
When you're not able to do something, that means you lack the power and the ability to get the job done. We have a lot of people that are in financial straits and they are not able to pay their bills. When you're not able to, that means you can't take your credit card out and go buy something because there's nothing left. You you can't borrow because you have no credit. I mean, when you're not able to do something, it means you can't get it done no matter what. We go back to our first story about the young lady bobbing in the Chesapeake Bay. She couldn't save herself. She, as the rescue worker said, was screaming for her life. They heard her and they went over and they were able to rescue her. He said, this doesn't happen very often. That's why it's in Reader's Digest. It's a wonderful story. She was rescued. This is the story that Jesus is telling us here. It's not few people get saved because few people are in danger. No, every soul that's ever lived is in danger. It's not few people getting saved because few people want to be saved. No, because everybody wants to be saved. It says the reason there are few that are saved is because most are not able. Let me just quickly go over a couple of stories in the Bible. I hope you would know them. How many know the story of the rich young ruler? Mark chapter 10. Very good young man. Apparently his dad had died and left him an inheritance. He was had not only physical wealth and great amount of that, he had political power, he was a ruler, he had... Uh, everything the world has to offer. When he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the Ten Commandments. He said, I've done that. Then Jesus said, sell everything you have and follow me. And here's what he said. He went away sorrowful for he had great riches. You see, he couldn't enter heaven because he couldn't let go of what he had here on earth. Last Sunday night, we're going through the Bible looking at lesser characters in the Bible. And we went through the two Roman governors, Felix and Festus. And we talked about King Agrippa, who was sitting there as um, uh, Festus was the governor. And he called in King Agrippa and, and Paul gave his testimony of faith in Jesus. And King Agrippa, that wicked, debauched grandson of Herod, the murderer of the babies at Bethlehem, he looked and he said, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. But he couldn't give up his title. He couldn't give up his perverted life. And it was beyond anything you could imagine. He wanted to be saved, but he couldn't be. Because he couldn't let go of who he was. This next story you'll know. Judas, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus 
three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Jesus' testimony of Judas was none is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Somehow Judas, while he was walking with Jesus, had made contact with the devil himself. And when he had the choice, he chose the devil rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And then the soldiers that were with him arrested Jesus and took him away. Do you not think Judas was sincere? I mean, when Jesus foretold at the supper hours earlier that one of the disciples would betray him, they all said, Oh, it's got to be Judas, right? No, the question, read the Bible, the question was, Is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Finally, Judas had to join in because everybody but him asked. He didn't want to look too. And Jesus just simply said, Thou hast said. But none of the other disciples knew it was Judas until they found out after the crucifixion of Jesus, someone came and told the story all through Jerusalem that Judas had went out and hanged himself. Judas couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven because he wouldn't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, can we end on one positive story? How many of you remember the story of Mark or John Mark in the scriptures he's known? They tell us in, in Mark's gospel, he's the writer of the book as far as we know. He tells the story of a young man that followed the, the, Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, and when they arrested Jesus, the, whoa, the men that were with him grabbed a hold of this young man. And uh, he, was, he had just grabbed a linen garment, wrapped it around him, and he left it in their hands and got out of there with a red face trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, people believe that that was actually Mark. Later on, he would follow his uncle Barnabas and the man we call uh, uh, Paul or Saul of Tarsus on their first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 13, it says before they got really down to the work that something happened in Mark's life and he left and didn't go with them to the work. Two chapters later, Barnabas says, listen, let's take Mark with us. And Paul said, I'm not taking that quitter. And the contention was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas split up and went separate ways. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the end of Paul's life, he's in the Mamertine dungeon in, in the city of Rome awaiting his execution at the hands of the insane Nero. And he says, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I think Uncle Barnabas had a little bit to do with that. I'll tell you somebody else that had a little bit to do with Mark getting back straight. Peter. Mark's testimony, the best we can understand by studying history and those things, Peter was the teller of the story. 
You know, Peter had a little problem with failure the night Jesus was betrayed, wasn't he? Didn't he? He spent a little time with Mark. And the quitter stopped quitting, amen? You know why? Because he entered in at the straight gate. He was still striving. He was still seeking. He couldn't always make things work the way he wanted to. But I'll tell you what, something happened. The old cranky apostle. Now, he really wasn't those things. He was just offended at Mark's failure. But you know what? He got over that. He said, you bring me that young man. Let me encourage him in the ministry. He entered in. Amen. How horrible would it be to live a whole life striving and fighting to enter in that straight gate and never going through it and missing an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was not playing games here. He was not being cute. He was attacking the foundational belief that was prevalent in this religion that the Jewish people had at this time. And that same belief is the basis of all religions of our day and our time. If you'll be good enough, God will understand and he'll let you into heaven. Jesus said, that's not true. He said, you're going to have to strive. You're going to have to cry as the young lady scream for your life. Though you don't have to scream because God can hear you. Amen. You don't even have to speak the words out loud. God knows what's going on in your heart. But you got to let go of the things of this world. You got to let go of your position and who you think you are. You've got to let go of your religion and embrace only Jesus Christ. What makes it so hard? is everything that's going on around us. The devil is the prince of confusion and distraction. What are you doing? Have you entered in at that straight gate? Someone may be sitting here saying, Pastor, you're trying to get me to doubt my salvation. No, I'm not. But if a simple little message like this can make you doubt your salvation and worry about it, then maybe you ought to spend a little time investigating what kind of salvation you have. Because the salvation that God gives can handle a little examination because it's Him, not you. Amen? It's okay to test something if it's real. It stands up to the test, doesn't it? If it's fake... It breaks down. Put it to the test. Strive to enter in at that straight gate. It says, For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. I'm here to tell you, Jesus wants you to enter in. Will you trust him today if you have not already? Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we enter the time of invitation, we just simply ask the question, are you saved? Do you know for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home? Lord, we ask that people would be able to answer that question honestly in their own hearts and souls. Lord, that we would not pretend that we would be willing to go through the personal discomfort, the striving, the desperation, until we get past ourselves to understand your word. Lord, I pray that there would be no one that would be here today that would seek and not be able to enter in. Yet, Lord, it says, few that are saved and many seek. We call upon the Holy Spirit of God to do the work in each heart and each soul today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.